Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan. And with me, as always, is a man who seems to always run into old friends from his uh, orphanage when he visits another city on Christmas Eve. I don't know. It's No, it's, it's, it's good to connect with old friends and feel human for five minutes before I try to rape one of them. Yeah, right? Oops. It's, it's you know, you can really reconnect with to humanity be, right before you violate its, the sanctity of it. To be fair, uh, to, now that I provided the great pool quote, um, to be fair to the character, he does uh, reinvigorate past traumas before, uh, before that particular thing happens, and he immediately uh, feels regret before things go too far. Right. I mean, so, he does actually respond to the phrase, no. Yes. By not doing yes. the thing he was going to do, which is right, good. Right. His right. behavior up to that is bad. Um, right. I, let me tell. Let me give you a little bit of a lowdown before we ever get into what's happening here, of what I did wrong. Okay. I also started watching the new Perry Mason this week, <laughs> not realizing that what would actually happen is I have no idea what happened in which thing. I don't believe Blast of Silence contains a very upsetting dead baby. Uh, no. But it is very muddled for me with regards to which things happen which show and which, which okay. uh, viewing experience. Okay. Um, so, so as you think back, mm-hmm. okay, uh, Blast of Silence is the stuff that is shot in black and white and contains no black people. Well, that's not true. That's you're right. You're right. That's not true. That's, but also, I've only seen the first episode of Perry Mason, so it also contains no black people. <laughs> you're right. Well, by the time by the time Perry Mason uh, begins to contain black people, uh, you won't uh, you won't be able to see them anyway. Okay. Um, well, I, I my, kind of part of the reason I started watching the, it was to test that hypothesis and just find out if it was just Adam's yeah. TV. I've talked to Pat about this before, and I'm not the only one. I have okay. I have searched on the internet. I've found other people complaining about this. Um, when black characters are on the Perry Mason show, like the the show is phenomenally shot, but for some reason, uh, when black people are on it, uh, they are not well lit, and and in particular when they are in say a dark hallway or even outdoors, you can't <laughs> see their face. So we call yeah, that a creative choice, Adam. Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you get access to a bonus episode. You get to vote on what that bonus episode is going to be. Uh, you get access to the entire back catalog of bonus episodes. There's really, there's a lot of content over there. It's always a non-criterion film, uh, or at least is a, is a non-criterion film when we make the list. Uh, Not for long. At least once. Once where it became a Criterion film after we made the list. Uh, 
but uh but yeah we watch uh we watch a much more eclectic mix of movies over there not that i mean look at the criterion collection it's a pretty eclectic mix of movies already right but uh but there's no earnest in the criterion movie well <laughs> not yet for, not yet we, not we yet, know where this not is yet. headed not, you know it's God, the earnest box set is gonna be amazing <laughs> It's gonna be so good. Man. I want to read the articles so that good. attend it. Like, I that's what I want to yes. know. I want to know. Absolutely. I want to. I want to see what like what reviewer they asked to like write a like a very serious analysis of Ernest. Uh, some sort of uh, con- uh, contemplation on escapism and God, I hope it's an me. Ernest relation to like modern me. man or something like that. I just I just want it to be me. Criterion, hey. please. I know you listen. Okay, I I would like to point out, and I, I thought about this. I keep thinking it's a thing I think about a lot, but I very rarely bring up back up on the podcast. Yeah, the Robin Robinson Crusoe in space is exclusively in the Criterion Collection because the CEO of Criterion liked the movie as a kid, right? Which means all bets are off. Literally, yeah, yeah. any movie could be in the Criterion Collection. <laughs> right. I mean, Armageddon is in there presumably because probably like the CEO is friend like. Like uh, we we had a serious discussion of it, but presumably because like the CEO is friends with like, oh my brain, Michael Bay, and Michael Bay also did um, the Rock, the Rock, which is also which is also in there. So I'm gonna go on a limb and say CEO of Criterion, uh, friends with Michael Bay, or his product, or like the head of his production is also on the way. Right, Right, that's what I'm saying. So like all bets are off. Like anything could be in there. There's no reason like. There's no reason that any should one should ever scoff at the notion that there could be an Ernest box set. Yeah, that it could just happen. Movie. Yeah, any movie could be right. in this thing. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, we we've not watched any uh, any Transformer movies over there, but we have watched uh, an Ernest film. If you make um, me watch a Transformer movie, I'm leaving. <laughs> Podcast is finished, well, dude. Well, we're doing the we're doing the Transformers this <laughs> You're next. You're gonna month. put me to the test to see if I'm sure. serious. Well, I hope yeah. you enjoyed doing a podcast alone with like a soundboard of me <laughs> saying that's weird. Or I've got I don't know. I've got all the audio. Yeah, you, you know, could, it'll take I, me a little bit to edit it down, but I've got well, that, I've, I, I've got the Pat so- soundboard files. I, I, so. I found there. I watched a, a YouTube video that discussed. Apparently, somebody wrote like a Python script or something that would do that automatically. That uses AI to analyze voice content and like will gotcha. assemble it and then re-level it so it sounds like it's all at the same time. It's not perfect. It still sounds a little robotic, but you know, if you want a Pat that you just type out, there you go. Listen, um, bookmark that for when one of us dies. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah. I mean, I I was just gonna play like, uh, like just play like a set. Like every episode just is just a tw- like an hour of just a sad song playing. And no, and no podcasts. It's when I just keep releasing them. <laughs> Pat, I love you so much. Well, just I'll uh, just play anyway. everybody hurts for an hour. Yeah, for yeah. forever, really. Spine number whatever, like spine number eight hundred ninety five, whatever movie Excellent. it is. It's just, just everybody hurts loop. for an hour. Just on a loop. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, anyway, Lost in Criterion's uh, Patreon is. Uh, I almost goofed up the title. <laughs> you almost did me a favor uh, and let me say something stupid. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, patreon.com slash lost in criterion. If you want to uh, get in on that, like I said, the one dollar level, you get the bonus episode, you get to vote. We put together a list every month. It's four movies that are themed, and then the fifth movie is always Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal. It's a great watch, actually. It really is a fun movie. It, it's pretty fun. My uh, kids like bad. it. When Don't I get me wrong, it. but yeah. it's not the worst but movie. But when we've you're like 10, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, 
a little extra $5 a month. We thank those people on air. We don't actually have anyone at the $5 a month uh, mark right now. We did for a very long time, but uh, everybody who was at the $5 a month, who has ever been at the $5 a month, has popped up to $10, uh, and we're very grateful for that because uh, at $10 and above, we do something that I think is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little thank you note, and mail that off. We do also like to thank people at that level yes. uh, on air. So thank you so much to our $10 and above supporters, Adam Spickerman, Jonathan Hape, Patrick Yacco, Michael McGrath, Jason Westhaver, Charlie Mueller, and Christopher Otto. We are so happy to have you all. Yes, we are. Uh, I hope you're looking forward to yeah. getting a postcard based on Walker, because I guarantee you that's what's back <laughs> and happening this time. Yeah, Walker was a good movie. Uh, and it's just so full anyway. of fun visuals. Like, I have to find a way. I, it really is. Watch, it it's really going to be like f- freaking mafioso or something. But it's like, <laughs> like, I always say that. Like, <laughs> I always not? have an idea in my head, and then, like, something goes awry in my brain, and, like, I spit out a totally different postcard than what I meant to. So, again, yes. Uh, Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion if you want to get in on that at any level. We're very grateful, and we're grateful to those who uh, can't support us but are still listening. Yeah, we so, appreciate all of you. Um, we just appreciate the ones who send us money more. Oh, yeah. We also appreciate anyone who reviews us. Uh, this is serious. Oh, God. I, I really Are we doing this. this now? We're going to... No, we, I'm not going to talk about any of them. No, I, I, looked I will up, say I looked that up. the thing we have dropped the ball on as a podcast is the thing that all other podcasts do, which is like remind people that reviews like do help grow the yeah. audience. Yeah. I think it's probably because you and I don't want to actually be heard. Oh, yeah. We don't want to actually <laughs> want we the don't, audience We don't to want anybody we don't else care. to hear us. Uh, uh, it was. I remember the first time we we actually ever looked at our audience numbers and we're like, oh no, what have we done? <laughs> this is way more people so, than are supposed to be listening to this. Right, right, right. Way like orders of magnitude. Yeah, we're like more because well, we started with like than... five people listen, forty people, fifty yeah. people listen. It's like, wait a minute, what's happening here? This is for Pat and I. The fact that anyone listens is really it's really shocking, delightful, really. And, and the fact that any of you choose to pay for it, I can't, I can't even. I deeply, deeply yeah. appreciate it, and I'm also very confused. So this week, we are talking about a, uh, a 1961 indie film, which means that it's probably only in here because somebody at Criterion... <laughs> somebody knows, like a guy or something. ...really likes it. Um, Saw it in the theater when they childhood. were, like, twi- when they now, were like act- 23 years old, and they're like, this is awesome. Actually, this movie, uh, um, the person at Criterion who really likes this movie is... Uh, uh, Scorsese. I figured. Um, I you yeah. like you. I was like leading into that yeah. sentence. I was like, I know what Adam's going to say now. <laughs> right, right, right. Martin Martin Scorsese loves this. Movie. You're telling no, me. No, he talks about Martin this movie Scorsese as, likes a uh, film that's based heavily on voiceover <laughs> narration and is gritty. I refuse to believe what you've just told me. And about mobsters. And about mobsters. Let's, let's hit it. Let's hit them across the and, board. And how they're so. human too. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah, no, he, he talks about this being a pinnacle of New York film. Um, and in that regard, you know, it, I mean, it, sure. it really I, I reminded me. Yeah. Um, it felt a lot like Casavada's early stuff, too, like Shadows. It reminded yeah, me of. Yeah, yeah not, obviously not in theme or, or function, right. but but in feel. In well, yeah, I mean, it has that sort uh, of like, I'm telling a story, but it also feels like it meanders a little. Like. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I know what yeah. you know what you're saying. I I can't put it to words right, either, but I know right. what you're saying. Obviously, this has a lot more plot than yes, yeah. Shadows did. Um, 
and other stuff of that area too, era too. Uh, anyway, uh, Scorsese really loves this, and every so often he'll talk about it, and it'll get sort of resurgence. Uh, it Wait, screened... resurgence to a film that you cannot find anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, it screened at Con in 2006. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. Um, they did a screening, I think, at the Munich Film Festival in 1990. Like, like every 15 to 20 years, uh, people rediscover this movie and really love it. So we're about due. Right. I mean, uh, we could be leading the charge right now. Uh, can yeah, I say something could. about it? Like, yeah, absolutely. I generally do, did enjoy the film in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, man, the first time the voice narration comes on, I laughed. <laughs> I started it's giggling. Wonderful. I couldn't help myself. It's so great. It I was really like, boy, is so this great. is fucking intense. Yeah. Somebody was like, wow. Yeah. We'll get into why that is. But uh, this movie is Blast of Silence from 1961. It is uh, it is a noir film, um, a very late noir film. Uh, it's, it's labeled as a neo-noir. I'm not even sure if it's... I mean, late by like a really yeah. late noir film. Like, I mean, it's like... So I mean, maybe it's even gotta like, be an homage at that point, right? It just has to be. By nineteen sixty one, it's an homage to noir filmmaking, right? Like it has <laughs> maybe. to be. So I guess so I guess it really does qualify as neo noir in that right. in that regard. It doesn't um, have, I think, some of the other trappings of neo noir, yeah. but yeah. It is directed uh and stars Alan Barron. Uh this is his first film. He would go on to make uh I think three other features, three or four. Uh Predominantly moving into the future, he would direct television, including episodes of Charlie's Angels, Dukes of Hazard, and Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Also, all uh, neo noirs. So, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, he stars in it as well because they got Peter Falk, and Peter Falk then got offered a similar role as a hitman, rather. Uh, that's maybe where the similarities end. I've not seen the other movie. Uh, but he got offered a role as a hitman in Murder, Inc., and took that job probably because it paid. Right, uh, this right. movie was made for twenty grand. Um, I, no, I refuse to believe it. Which even in 1961 was an incredibly small amount of money to spend making a movie. Um, so uh, it took two years to shoot. And yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that's. I think that's where I honestly, like we were... I mean, you were talking about Cassavetes and stuff, but like Cassavetes has it comes from a different angle. But like, oh yeah, that absolutely. like, oh, this movie cost us the money I had in my pocket at the time when we started filming to make. <laughs> right, it has that right. feel about it, right? Like that, like it's all probably it's all all the outdoor stuff is all just sort of guerrilla filmmaking. It's just like, or at least it has that appearance of like. The final shootout film, uh, shootout piece, the reason it's so windy and stormy on the audio is that it was shot during a literal hurricane. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like they just, they had to do it, so they did it. Right. Um, <laughs> Alan Barron, prior to this, had been a comic book illustrator. Okay. Uh, he, uh, from what I've read, he's apparently getting back into art. Uh, when this, when Criterion released this, the essay talks about him uh, getting prepared for his first uh, Los Angeles show of his paintings. Also, on the on the Criterion bonus features in this is a uh, a comic book adaptation of it, a graphic novel version uh, drawn by uh, Sean Phillips, who uh, who's done a lot of a lot of work. Uh, Marvel, the the Criterion is delightful because. 
it lists criminal sleeper, which are apparently, you know, they're not big name works. Um, but then the big name work they choose to choose to <laughs> list is Marvel zombies. Yeah. As something he's drawn. I, I, we, we talked about this uh, last yeah. week. I, I think probably I we're dealing with the fact that like, they don't update the copy on their website very often. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's great. It's great. Um, but yeah, so they they take a movie uh, made by a comic book illustrator who's not especially known as a comic book illustrator, and then get an especially known comic book illustrator to uh, draw a comic right. book version of it. So, Criterion, good job on that one. Actually, I really appreciate that. That's really that's delightful. But yeah, Blast of Silence. Uh, the opening narration that you alluded to, uh, and all of the narration is so bizarre. It is. Uh, it's in the second really person, wild. right? It's in the second person describing our main character. Can you think of any other movie you have ever seen with second person narration? Because I can't. <laughs> uh, no, I can't. I, it's interesting that you're you talk about the person because I, while I did, I assume like subconsciously notice that. I'm more yeah. keyed into the fact that like it's when I think about noir esque voiceover narration. The style, not just in like, like grammatical style, but like the production value of it tends to be more gentle and subtle. Yeah. This this feels like a man's yelling at me almost immediately. Right. Right. <laughs> it's like, why, why are you angry at me right now? I, I'm just watching. I don't know what you want from me. Where it functions so well, I think, even in that regard, is that noir voiceover is usually the internal thoughts of our main character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and here, it is the internal thoughts of our main character, but he is so disconnected right. from yes, everyone that he calls really well himself that. Yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like the voice of God. Um, uh, I ha- You know what? In hindsight, I have definitely encountered that before. I'm yeah. trying to think where. I will say... <laughs> That that style is not uncommon in text adventure games. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That second person sort of you're the protagonist and and we're talking to the audience. It's right. definitely text adventure, um, which is another interesting aspect of it. And it's a voice of God thing there too, right? Because right? right, yeah. it's it's a third person omniscient, um, right? Right? Yeah, describing things to you, right? Uh, it's very interesting to that. Um, <laughs> And the fact that it says, remembering out of the black silence, you were born in pain. It's the first line of this movie. Well, and, that, and that's why I've reacted really, like, I, I, like, I launched this. I was at work, okay? I was, I was, on, a, I was on my break. I, I was watching this over, yeah. my, over two days lunch break. Um, and, like, the, I'm sitting down with a sandwich, and the screen's all black, and it's yelling at me about my birth. And I'm like, what? the fuck is happening right now i love it so much and then and then you get that light at the end of the tunnel which uh you know as we're talking about birth obviously you know uh birth canal getting born uh but also you know the the colloquial motif of the light at the end of the tunnel is uh you know approaching death and and seeing seeing heaven on the other side or whatnot so this is a movie that that starts with birth but also firmly establishes that uh we can probably expect some death in this right right, by the time we get to the end 
Um, that voiceover narration, interesting enough, is uh, uh, delivered by an actor named Lionel Standard, or Stander, rather, Lionel Stander, uh, who was blacklisted at the time. Hmm. Uh, he uh, was known as a film and radio actor through the 30s and 40s, uh, but the House on American Activities Committee... Uh, blacklisted him so he was not getting a lot of work at the time which is why he's uncredited here uh also it's an independent film which is why he could do it at all right. uh, because it wasn't a wasn't a studio thing uh the narration itself is written by a guy named waldo salt uh who is also blacklisted and working under the pseudonym mel davenport for uh for his creditation here uh, other than that, the movie was written as well uh, by Alan Barron, uh, but Salt wrote that narration, and uh, so we get we get as our first introduction here. We have a black screen, and we have the voice of a blacklisted uh, actor reading the words of a blacklisted writer about disassociation and alienation and loneliness. Right. Right. Um, and, then, and for and a movie that is predominantly not political, right. <laughs> for a movie that is predominantly right. not pre- political, that's a very interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, thing it, it's, happening. It, right? it is hard to say whether or not this movie is political, and the the reason yeah. I bring that up is, well, it, I don't think it's it's not overtly political. It's Certainly. it's sort of meditation on. It, I would I it is using sort of the a rehash of the noir genre to meditate on what it presumes is the state of many people, especially living in New York city at the time, whether they want to acknowledge it or not about not actually being able to form connections with their fellow man, not, not real connections. I mean, this is a fairly, I mean, this is already, you know, in 1961, this is already old, old, Right, right. we've hash, talked about right? that like with other New York films. People talk about it, but like it's a real concern, and and this movie deals with talking about and and makes a connection between that and violence, which is an interesting right. bit of connection to make. Not necessarily right or wrong, but interesting. Yeah, no, no, the idea of uh, of that ostracization leading uh, to violent outbursts is not not unfounded right no yeah i mean it is it is also uh equally wrong to to say that a person ostracized will by nature become violent yeah well and that's i mean the movie posits one possible like a person a sort of case of a person who is violent because he is he is not able to make human connections it does it is a meditation on that kind of person. It is not necessarily a, a statement that that is the only kind of person who turns violent or anything like that. Right. Um, and 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 in that regard, you know, it's a meditation on that character. Right. It's not even right. Exactly. And that's where where I say this movie doesn't feel overtly political. Is that it, I don't feel like this is trying to necessarily say anything wider about anything. Right? Well, it's also an indictment of Chillicothe, but like, I mean. Whatever. Um, <laughs> you mean Cleveland? No, at one point they referenced Chillicothe for some fucking reason. Do they? I got I so it. confused. Okay. 
this is part of the problem because I did okay. also watch Perry Mason, but Perry Mason never <laughs> references pretty Cleveland sure Perry and Joe Mason never I'm certain of that. Yeah. At one point, I got very confused because it seems like, based on everything I've read, that the orphanage is in New York. The, all the plot summaries yeah. have that, and he's like, well, he came back to New York. But when he's talking to uh, Lori, at one point yeah. she references Chillicothe, and they both talk about how boring it was. <laughs> and I was like, was the orphanage in Chillicothe, or was it in yeah. New York? Yeah, Richard 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 Brody uh, references the fact that the orphanage was in Chillicothe, and I trust Richard Brody. But like uh, even the plot summary, factual, on, right? But the plot summary yeah. even on on Wikipedia talks about the orphanage being in New York, which brings me to my major problem with the movie because when I found out that the orphanage was in Chillicothe, which I believe is accurate because that is what Laurie says, and he says, yeah. "Yeah, I had to get out of there. It sucked. I wanted to move to a real city." Our main character says that to her. Yeah. The other one of the other main characters of the film. I was like, wait, so they're all from Chillicothe and he runs into them all in New York City. What the fuck is happening here? <laughs> that makes no sense. New York City has yeah. twelve people in it. Uh the uh if you search in quotes on Google, Blast of Silence and Chillicothe. Uh, one of the first results is Richard Brody on Twitter talking about it and referencing that his father is from Chillicothe in talking about the movie. Uh, and one, the second one is the Japanese language Wikipedia page for Chillicothe, Ohio. Nice, is, nice, yes, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> really great. But yeah, yeah, I guess I I missed that somehow. But yeah, but the, it's, uh, it's the weird is in Chillicothe because yeah. it's mo- uh, most summaries of the movie say that the orphanages in New York because that's the only thing that would make sense for the plot to work right. because why As the fuck why are all, all these why people they in New York? All there. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's just a weird assumption that all people who watch the movie make because yeah. otherwise you end up where I ended up with which is finishing the last 20 or 30 minutes of the movie being like I'm in a dream world what the hell is happening here? <laughs> right, right. There is The no, entire orphanage is... moved to New York City except for him yeah. who moved to Cleveland. Yeah, there's like no internal logic to why there's no story basis for why it needs to be in Chillicothe, for no. why it needs to be named anywhere, uh, except for the idea that he is an outsider to New York as well, right? Right. And he's well, coming that, to New that York is important. As an outsider. That's why he is from Cleveland yeah. in the movie, right? right. And it, and it feels like maybe like somebody missed something in the writing, like. And just didn't realize that that reference to Chillicothe was still in there or something. It's like, well, yeah. we already used the film. It's in. Or something. Because yeah. it's like, why would they all be from Chillicothe? Like, except for, like, he would have no reason to leave New York if they were from New York. Right. Like, his, like even the, his stated reason the Wikipedia for plot synopsis says that in, it's in New, York. New York City is hometown. Yeah. But, but it makes no sense because his stated reason for leaving the orphanage is that like it was not a... It, we all know that it's right. actually because he has trouble connecting with other human beings, but his stated reason is that it's, it was too boring a place. Right, but, like, right. That's which is obviously wrong because yeah. Chillicothe has the, the pumpkin festival. Right. No, that's <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, I'm, like, I'm moving to Cleveland <laughs> after living in New York does not seem like a level up in excitement <laughs> right. anyway. Right. Like, but certainly a level up from Chillicothe. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, hey, who am I to judge? Uh, I've exclusively I mean, lived like, in ta- very small towns in my life. Yeah, right, right, right. 
Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I had an, I I had missed that bit, but yeah, that makes it does make a phenomenally more <laughs> confusing film. Co- yeah, <laughs> both confusing and makes more sense for his character motivations too. Like everything that's happening here, but yeah, the fact that the two of them, like if I if I had known somebody of an orphanage in Chillicothe, presumably you know, limited amount of contact with anyone, you might recognize them in the future, but also thinking about how changes in context keep me from recognizing people oh, yeah. so often right totally i don't think if i walked into a random restaurant oh no you in, would not like unless it's in somebody new york like, i would recognize right. you in a yeah. restaurant in new york if i just stumbled upon yeah. you but but if i if i without telling you in any manner that i was going to come to japan right you walked into a restaurant in True, your town. True, that right is a now, good point. That is and good point. I was be, sitting there. Well, you would be like the only white guy I saw in like the last like two weeks. So like, I mean, I would pay attention to you anyway. I'm not. Yeah, but I'm not so not entirely convinced that you paying attention to me would even no, that's mean true. that that's you recognize true. me. Uh, as I mean, especially if I had not seen you, and presumably somewhere in the neighborhood of at least ten years. Right. Like, right. Like, if I yeah. saw you, the, especially, like, I mean, I, you're right about context. I think you're right. But I, if you multiply that by the fact that, like, if I saw you now and I hadn't seen you since we, like, maybe, like, both graduated from college, like, zero chance. Yeah. Zero chance. Because we don't look right. the same right. anymore. And, of course, there's, you know, it's a different context than just people you went to high school with, right? You know, it is, it is. they were at an orphanage. Right, together, I understand. So, presumably, that. they were living together. They were seeing each other, you know, uh, t- t- more than 12 hours a day. Right. Um, but, they, yeah, you never so, know. I mean, I don't know that I would be, I would I recognize my sister if she were in a restaurant in Japan apropos of nothing? <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. Hard yeah. to say. Um, but, yeah, yeah, Frankie is, it's, yeah, so he's... He's a guy who's trying to escape, trying to escape the orphanage, trying to escape the family situation that sent him to the orphanage uh, and moves to Cleveland to be anonymous and then gets Do you more think anonymized. the story he tells about the car dealership or whatever, or the, oh, sorry, not car dealership, the parking lot or whatever that he was working for is real, that he tells Lori... Like, do you think that's actually what happens and he just leaves out the other... Like, he gets mad at her explaining his sort of life history. Yeah. In that same scene where he then eventually assaults her. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Do you think that's real? Or do you think he's just leaving out bits or do you think he's making something up? Because keep in mind, he's the sort of character who could also be an unreliable narrator and just make shit up. That's fair, but I don't know... I feel like in that situation, obviously he has reason not to tell her what his actual job is. Right. right? No, of course. But the emotion that he has there and his actual longingness to connect with her in that moment, mm. I feel like it is it is true to his backstory, even if the writing of the movie, it wouldn't necessarily make sense. Right? Right. I, like I, the, yeah. the writers believe this is a motivational factor to him mm. but but maybe if we timelined frank's life it wouldn't actually work out that this was true right or not yeah um, i was just wondering cause but like, yeah 
I mean, Frank seems like the sort of person who might be able to create a fictitious past for himself and then buy into yeah. it hard enough that he believes that's his past. <laughs> that's also fair. Like, I, I'm not saying that that's what's happening in the movie. I'm just saying that that's Listen, it's very Frank's real got a lot of trauma. Yes, right? exactly. And 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 we already know that Frank is a big uses a lot of dissociation to escape his trauma. Um, so one begins to wonder what else would Frank do to not have to engage with that trauma. Would it include creating a fictitious? life history for himself right. in Cleveland that he believes yeah. is real or at least is emotionally invested in enough that he can choose at certain times to be like to decide this is my past right, right. now and I'm going to be emotionally invested in it. He okay. works a job where he has to have a cover at some right. points, right? Obviously. Right. You know, he's not working in the shadows. He's not just an assassin. He's he's uh you know, he's a hitman. He's gotta have some amount of cover. We know he has the creative capacity for imagining other people's inner lives because he does that to his victims. He openly talks right. about doing it to his victims. We see him do it to Troy. Well, I mean, it is his part he, of his process that allows him to do yeah. what he does is creating right. a fictitious now, past that makes them deserve it. Yeah. Now, also part of that process is, uh, you know, uh, projecting all of his issues with his father onto whoever he true. needs to kill. <laughs> true. To, right. Um, <clears throat> which... You know, it works for him. And <laughs> I mean, I guess he gets the job done, right? I mean, gets the job done. Yeah. And presumably, you know, we only see one murder and he's mid-level and he's, Toriano's like kind of likable in all this. You yeah. know, we don't see a lot of him. And he's he's cheating on his wife, sure. But like, I mean, we don't see him do a, anything especially gangster. evil. That's, right. I mean, literally. He's a movie part... gangster. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, He's like a movie mid middle management gangster, right? The thing, right? Right, um, and that's one of my favorite things uh, from the Criterion essay on this. Uh, describes this as the uh, uh, one of the few movies to accurately represent the bad work trip. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which, well, which except for I have almost never run into my entire <laughs> orphanage at, on a bad work trip. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair, but. Credit to Terrence Rafferty for for that phenomenal right. description of this movie, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, he's just you know he he creates the reason to hate Toriano, right? Right, and he manufactures it, and it's got some basis in reality, but it's got some basis in a purposefully unnuanced view of the reality. Oh, absolutely, scene, right? Yeah, yeah, he's. He's found one aspect of Toriano's personality that he can latch on to, connect it to the negative trauma he has from his relationship with his family as a child, and use that to ratchet up his hatred of this right. guy. Yeah. And he openly talks about doing that, right? He says, I can, I've made myself hate him. Hate it, and, and even describes hating him more than he hates his dad. Right. right? At one well, point. I mean, and he describes so. it as his process, right? Like, he describes, like, right. what this is what he does to every right. victim. Like, this is, he always hate. he says literally, like, I always hate them by the time I kill them. Right, right. And, you know, in that regard, Frankie is a very interesting character. Yeah, no, right? I, I yeah. agree. Like, I mean, the. I will say that in terms of like just pure like movie craft and and acting, the movie can be a little stiff at times and can be a little bit mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the acting can get a little rough sometimes. Uh, There's no escaping that. Um, It gets a little wooden. But that being said, as a story, as a movie that's digging into the inner life of a person who is remorselessly violent, but not in the way that most movies are about, those sorts are about serial killers who just, you know what I mean? Like, we've all seen movies like that right that like right to analyze the inner life of a serial killer now i mean is a hitman a serial killer like that's a whole other thing but like right i don't know the answer to that question (laughs) i I will say that you know it his he uses the probably the similar tools mentally but um but in the regard of meeting old friends this this has a lot in common with something like gross point blank right yeah 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 right and and you know, and it is those aspects of it are ironically silly as they are in Gross Point Blank. Gross Point Blank is explicitly a comedy more than this is right. certainly, but but it's still you know his that party scene is funny. It's very right, weird right. seeing this character Frank, who we have known long enough to know what he is. End up at this Christmas party and, and having a, a peanut race. Yeah, and nose right? peanut nose rolling race is <laughs> yeah is wild. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean the the movie is, the movie is very well crafted. In, like right. I I talk about it, um, some of the some of the you know craftsmanship issues as far as like writing is concerned. Like again, there are some mistakes uh, that became right. apparent when we discuss it. But like from a more sort of conceptual basis, right? Like. That's an interesting thing, right? Because the movie takes enough time to make us know who this person is right. through its narration and right. then like immediately turn around and subvert that person by making Frank pretty likable and like just a normal right. dude who does nose peanut race rallies or whatever right. I right. want to fucking call him uh, right. with his friends in an apartment. You know, it's yeah, that sort of turnaround made by the yeah. movie on and, us is really fascinating and pd framing it as a uh, a rematch right for and and talking to all of the friends in his apartment as if they are also frankie's old friends like right, right, everybody right. knows that me and frankie had this peanut race 15 years ago right and that i kicked his butt and now i <laughs> now he needs right. to redeem himself it's just it's it's very silly yeah, but it's absolutely. also a way a drunk guy would talk about a childhood friend too, right? right? Absolutely, yeah, no, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, so it makes sense, and I really think that Alan Barron, being a first-time director, writer, not coming from a film background, uh, raised two twenty thousand dollars of his own money to make this movie, uh, and is now having to star in it after hiring a much better actor, right? Who, right. <laughs> who got a better job. That Baron's own inexperience, one, makes Frank wooden in some t- cases, right. but Frank being wooden is not unrealistic to the character as well. No, no, right? I would. I was not directly talking about Frank. I was actually talking yeah. about the other, because the other characters have less yeah. of a reason to be wooden. Uh, Frank right. being a little unable to express emotion in his communication makes sense. Um, yeah. Some of the other characters are also a little stiff and, uh, you know, I mean, again, budget and everything considered like that's a totally normal and acceptable thing that should be happening. 
it's it's just that like it's hard because you want to talk about how interestingly crafted the movie is, but you also have to talk about from like a purely technical right, right. standpoint, like that's yeah. some wooden acting going on yeah. here. It doesn't take Molly, away from the movie, but it is true. Yeah, Molly McCarthy, who plays Laurie, never acts again. Yeah, right? and <laughs> yeah, you, you figure that. And in that way, a thing I kept thinking about is like, if you're thinking about 1961 in the United States, it's like, what sort of weird relationship does neo noir has also to like cinema verite and like and like uh um what what am i thinking about like new wave cinema <laughs> cuz it's full yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like independent it's full of people who are not actors but they're not talking about real life per se they're talking about a, a fictitious life but that fictitious life at least is somewhat a conversation on real life it's just i it was and then obviously the film is shot very gorilla. There's lots yeah. of like clearly just running, you know, walking down a sidewalk in New York with a camera and then just hoping no one tells them to stop. Um, right. Happening right. here. And and you say that and you remind me of uh, another quintessential New York movie as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, Morris Ingalls' uh, Little Fugitive. Um, okay. From 1953 is about a, a little kid who uh, think <laughs> because of a practical joke his brother plays thinks he has killed his brother and runs away to Coney Island. And okay. The second half of the movie is all of them finding it. And Little Fugitive is a direct line uh, influence on uh, Truffaut and Godard getting into their new wave stuff. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it's non-professional actors. It's you know, and these you know they talk about it as far as I can recall. So, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, there's a lot uh, of stuff. Like, and then I was thinking, like, uh, I was trying to think. Um, oh no, what is the name of that? Um, oh yeah, okay, I was trying to think. Like, I started like thinking about like the Samurai or whatever it's called. Uh, mm-hmm. the, yeah, and then what year that came out? 1967. And and like you started to think like. From in my mind, the only reason I started thinking about that they, they don't have a lot in common otherwise um is just this this through line about the uh, like you have people just from time to time making noirs just yeah. kind of right 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 the the french the French new way of making noirs because that's what they uh that's like what they, what they watch they like as watch. kids yeah like yeah. it's a really because yeah. like I mean, I was like, did Melville make other yeah. other noirs? I don't – well, no, Bob LaFleur like, is definitely a – yeah, he oh, did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, well, I'm trying to Melville, remember. Melville definitely did. I and have the French gangster many. movies yeah. are, their own, are their own sort of weird thing. And, and, uh, but they're and Goddard's, definitely like – Goddard's like, gangster movies are, are just something entirely Well, yeah, but they're all, too, they all but, are still pulling from a sort of a, yeah. a, a sort of mythological like proto-noir – that right, this is right, also right. pulling from that predates all of their careers, basically, right? Right, um, right. And this, and this definitely has the same non-professional actors in a lot of ways, right. with the exception of uh, that voiceover, you know, and and even you know the production staff for non-professional. the The producer is doubling a cinematographer here, Mer- Meryl Brody, and I don't think Meryl Brody did anything else after this no, either. No one on this page has a Wikipedia page <laughs> right, at all. Right. Like, none. Right. Alan Barron is literally the only name you could click on, basically. 
Uh, uh, Larry Tucker. Larry Tucker. Who, yeah, uh, there's there's yeah. two clickable people. Yeah. I'm not counting the people who are already professionals when this started. Okay. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Larry Tucker, who uh, plays Big Ralph here, uh, went on and uh, became a writer, actually. He wrote Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, or co-wrote it, um, and a couple other things. Uh, he's also in Shock Corridor. We saw him in Shock Corridor. Okay. Um he plays a character named Pagalachi, who I think is, uh, I think is the God, shot I quarter so shot long quarter. ago. It's hard when to remember. When did we, why, what spine number was shot quarter? That was like. It was super early. Yeah, it that was would be yeah. ages uh, ago. Shot corridor was one where a female reporter goes undercover. In a in psychiatric the, uh, ward or something, right? Isn't it? Psychiatric ward, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, vaguely uh, remember. If I remember correctly. Uh, Pagliacci is uh, someone who ends up attacking her in the uh, in right. The war. I can see that. Um, but yeah, but but yeah, plays uh, plays Ralphie here. Ralphie's an interesting character in in how he's presented. First off, he's not miked well at all for the voice no. they want him to do because <laughs> he's talk. He talks in this sort of lispy whisper the entire time, right. <laughs> and like they're playing him as. Uh, as closeted, he's coded as gay, right? I of think. course, yeah, yeah, definitely, right? Um, and uh, and he keeps rats, but but the way he talks and the way he interacts with Frankie is just it. It definitely could have been could have been miked better. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. although I mean, in the grand sort of scheme of the effect that it produces, I mean, it does make it it does sort of do that thing that it draws you in because you can't hardly hear it. So you become yeah. engaged with what, you know, with uh, the character in the sense that you're like, well, I mean, you kind of get the impression of what it might be like to be Frank at the time. You're like, I can barely hear this guy. What's he say? Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it It's, it's a, there's a lot of choices being made. In that, yeah. w- in the scenes that have him in it, not all good choices, uh, but a lot of choices being made. Um, yeah. He, it, the, yeah, the the choice, like, but like, it, it is its own thing, right? Because I don't know, I I don't have any grounding to understand, like, you know, is this okay? Well, first of all, sorry to like jump around here. This movie is set in 1961, right? Because it sort of feels like sometimes it wants to be in like the 30s or, four, or something like that, but sometimes it wants to be meant, in 1961. It is meant to be shot. It is meant to be set. Can you know at the same time it's being shot, right. which is 1959 to right. 1961 because okay. yeah. it did take two years. Um. So yeah, it would it would be set then. I don't I don't think they have any reason. We have no reason to believe that it's meant to be set out of time, except for the noirish right feel exactly. of it is, well, is itself a sort of out of time thing, right? Exactly. I, yeah. I just, I every so often I, I found myself, want, it didn't feel like it, but like because of the way it's shot also, you don't get a lot of like touch points of like time reference in right, the film. Right, right, um, right. So because we're we're so internal to Frankie, we also don't, you know, Frankie doesn't care what year it is. That's right. not Frankie's <laughs> yeah, exactly. concern either, right? True. So, yeah. yeah. And, and I, was, I found myself wondering with regards to um, like Ralph is, like Big Ralph is, is, it's hard, I guess, probably because of the time we live in, 
that like mm-hmm. Ralph is 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 definitely coded as being a closeted gay man, but also we, like wildly eccentric, right? Like, and and like, I can't figure out if what the movie is trying to say in those moments. I think, uh, I think that is a sign of poorer writing that Frankie is a small collection of eccentricities instead of oh, you mean Ralph, a Ralph, Ralph is a... Ralph, yeah. yes, I'm sorry, Ralph. Well, Frankie is Ralph also is a, a weird collection of eccentricities <laughs> as well, but yeah. That's, that's fair, but at least we spend enough time with him to get an idea of, right. of who and what he is. Uh, Ralphie just exists as a... Uh, a foil to Frankie. Right, but what's fascinating um, about it is he's a pretty important one. Like, I mean, he he, right. he plays a pretty major role for a person who gets very little development as a character. Right, before being murdered and, <laughs> two-thirds right. of the way through the movie. Right. right, what I find myself wondering is, did the movie just decide to, like, was this supposed to be shorthand and, like, well, you know enough about him to, like, now when we kill him, you'll know what to feel when you kill him or he kills him or something. I, I don't know. It was very strange. I, I like that's no really I'll, with with this movie. Everyone but Frankie is bare minimum of a character of who they need to be for us to understand how they function in the plot. Now keep in mind, whole Frankie thing, also doesn't care about any other human being on Earth. Right. Right. So. Right. Which again, this all functions properly within the story because we have a character who we know well and. And relate to, despite the fact that he's a hitman. Uh, we understand him so well that we understand why everything else is sort of poor. It, In that regard, it kind of makes me think of J.K. Rowling and how uh, how the Harry Potter stories got more complex as the books moved on. Right. Which corresponded to them, you know, getting into higher grade levels. Uh, as students, the right. characters of the book, but really corresponded to uh, J.K. Rowling just becoming a better writer with right. each yeah, book. Yeah, I know. Right? Yeah, like yeah. really graduating really what along was, the scale right? of fiction writing, right? Uh, <laughs> right well, right. I would argue until it's th- Listen, that train okay. also derailed. There's, a, there's mean, an upper there's like, an upper limit to J.K. Rowling. Yeah, those later books getting better as a writer pretty sure. hard off like right. Right. just stop being right. Right. enjoyable to read. Um, a lot of people Listen, had a lot not, of like sunk cost fallacy yeah. in in those books. By the time we got to the last one, where they're like, "This think, has to be good." I spent so much time reading fair. the other ones. No, those are. I think that's fair. Garbage. But <laughs> let's not talk too much about J.K. We, Rowling. We, well, um, yeah. I thankfully, mean, I people, people are getting are over that sunk cost fa- <laughs> sunk cost fallacy yeah. with her now. Yeah, it, it took a while, but they were getting there. We're getting yeah. there. <laughs> she really had to lay it on yeah, before people. I, like, I like how, that how hard she had to work really to. Yeah. And by work, yeah. I mean reveal her true self, but whatever. Right, right. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but yeah, in, in that same regard, you know, Frankie, Frankie's inability to relate to people uh, reflects in, if he weren't developed so well, it would be a reflection of how poor the writing is for right, everyone else right right but because he inhabits it so right, well right. and maybe that's and maybe that's a credit to alan baron well, acting it's, it's, as well it's so weird though it's like uh, is it is it just like 
oh, we found the perfect kind of character to write when we don't want to write a really complicated story about <laughs> right, three right, complicated right. characters. Ah, <laughs> right, I know. Right. I'll make it about a sociopath who has trouble relating to other human beings. I only have to write about the one guy now. Everybody else Listen, can be I a have, sketch of a human. I have created so many characters in my life that that only exist to keep people from asking questions about them. <laughs> so, right, right. You know. Well, yeah, it's just it's, it's just a thing to think about because they've also only got what like seventy seven minutes or whatever. So it's like you know, right? How hard can you sketch out people when you have to also sell a, tell a story in like seventy seven minutes? And, and mind you, I've I've seen bad noirs. TV slash movies that that you know even the main character they are all like this including the main character right where the main character is right, right, right. you know everything you need to know about him in the first five minutes because he wears a fedora and and has heavy blind habits all window. of these stereotypes yeah. right and that's that's the interesting thing about Frankie is that he is he isn't a collection of stereotypes necessarily right he is uh, a collection of weird eccentricities but <laughs> but right. But they they come together, and he is unique, right? right. I, you know, in my knowledge of the time, right? And maybe that's not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, true. we certainly have not encountered enough of this. I personally have encountered a decent yeah. amount, but not enough to say definitively, like, is this a new or interesting kind of character archetype or not? Yeah. Um, Obviously, today, in yeah. in a post Reservoir Dogs world, the well, complicated. Right, but there's anti-hero, no anti-hero, right? Uh, you know, hitman character is is so commonplace. But right? there's but. no way in hell Reservoir Dogs does not, in fact, uh, is not is, is considering not who wrote about it this and yeah. and like yeah. all the things we know oh, about the certainly. universe. <laughs> right, like that person right. has seen this movie at least once, uh, probably an un, un, a kind of unreasonable number of times. If I'm going to be honest, um, given given uh, that. Uh, Reservoir Dogs itself is a mishearing of a French phase, and and uh, Tarantino pulls his uh, production company name off of uh, a a sort of misreading of a uh, a Truffaut film. It wouldn't surprise me right. if Tarantino is actually a fake name, and he's just misremembering the name of the. Murder victim in this movie, Tri- Troyani, Troyano, yeah. and, and he corrupted it. Right. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, Tarantino is, is who Tarantino is. Yeah, I, I, unrelated to that though was the thing that somebody I posted on. Uh, was that was it you who retweeted the thing of uh, about no more homages? Oh, I don't think so. Oh no, no. maybe um, uh, maybe it wasn't. I wasn't. Orson yeah, Welles in, a, in an interview on oh, French yes, yes, TV yes, yes, or whatever. Yes, yes I did <laughs> like, retweet that. The Orson Welles, like, the worst yeah. possible thing in the world. Don't do it anymore. You do it enough <laughs> yes. without thinking about it. You don't need to do it on purpose. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? And of course, great. the only person I could think about on Earth was Tarantino. Was Tarantino? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like the only thing yeah. I could process plenty, at that point. Plenty of people have that issue too, um, but but. And, you know, I don't. I don't consider it necessarily as much of a problem as Orson Welles. Well, no, I mean, well, Orson Welles or, is very or did in that person. moment. It's the other thing about Orson Welles is that uh, <laughs> in any given moment, what, what he's yelling about is not necessarily something he believes. We we all saw F for fake, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, like I said earlier, uh, according to uh, the Turner Classic Movies 
um, apparently, is the only source of this information. But that entire final sequence at the docks was shot during a hurricane. Um, Wow. I I mean, it shows. I mean, but I like actually, you know, not just a hurricane, Hurricane Donna. Hurricane Donna was a hurricane that went up the East Coast in the 60s, um, in 1960, September 1960, uh, and hit the entire East Coast and was one of one of few to hit New York City, I think, uh, for a long time. Uh, but yeah, playing into the entire East Coast from Florida to Maine uh, over the course Damn. of... Uh, yeah, I mean, um, atmosphere, it's an, it creates a really interesting atmospheric yeah. effect. That, right, like, right. That entire last scene is essentially in silence because you can't hear a damn thing. Right, right. Uh, and then, and it's <laughs> about a man being murdered out in the rain, basically. It's... Yeah, it's interesting. for a movie that's for a movie that's relying on naturalistic sound because they don't have microphones. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, it it's definitely an interesting choice to uh, shoot anything when the wind is so loud you can't hear. What's but yeah, going on. I, mean, like, I you know like I, but I didn't I didn't when I watched it I did not have access to the Turner Classic Movies information. Right. You didn't know that bit, and I and did not find it. Bad. I found it. It's not it distracting. Fitting. It felt like. Right. Of course, this is how Frankie dies. Is alone yeah. out in the rain. Right. Like, like it's not As even a, noir, a nice trip to the beach. It's the shittiest possible trip to the beach. Right. As a noir, our main character dying in a rainstorm. Right. Works. It, it works right. really well, and you're like, and especially yeah. when you start dealing with Frankie. As the character he is, and then that closing monologue about being alone when you die, it's like you couldn't yeah. be more alone than being shot to death on a beach in a hurricane, I don't think. Right. Like, right. I mean, I'm sure there are ways, but like you'd have to work really hard because yeah. the man, they're not, no one's in theory, I didn't know it was a hurricane, but like the, the sense of desolation. Because again, oh, yeah. they're doing, I think, mostly guerrilla filmmaking. They got that beach to themselves, there are no right. other human right. beings anywhere and that's the thing it's fortuitous even for the production company right or for the production that there is a hurricane because it means they can go to the beach and no one's going right to and they don't them, have to shoot right? super tight shots right they can just like let right. let it be open because like there's right. nobody here why would anybody right. be here right it works out and and, and, um, and again also like portraying what would normally be a kind of happy place as sort of a nightmare right like it's a boardwalk yeah, I mean, of course, when you're shooting black and white, you can make any place look like a nightmare, really. But, <laughs> but like the the you can do weather that in is color too, Pat. I I know, but what I mean is like black yeah. and white makes it really easy to be like, oh, oh this yeah. beautiful beach. Look how awful and nightmarish it is. <laughs> right. Um, right. I mean, yes, of course, you can do it in color, but like then you have, then yeah. you're getting into it's just particularly easy in black and white. Is all I'm saying. Um, right. And and to have the beach look just that like unfriendly is the right. mother nature's really working in their favor here i think maybe the worst bit of writing in this is the idea not the that coffee thing. even not not the chili coffee thing maybe <laughs> the worst piece of writing in this is the idea that frankie the character we know would even go like he has to know like he's going to yeah get, I, yes yeah, he, he wants definitely. his last payment but but at the same time He's going to to people he knows to be mad at him. Right. right? I, what I would say though <laughs> so. is that the movie does give you the the hint that that 
at some point as this progresses, Frankie's sense of self-preservation has shut down to right. a certain extent. Right. Like, Frankie's also Frankie's ready to just be over. This yeah. is suicide by boss. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It, and it really does yeah. feel that way. Like his inner monologue changes as we right. approach this event with the sort of like you know that fr- basically based on the dial like, monologue you know that Frankie knows right. that like he doesn't explicitly say it but you know that Frankie yeah. knows that like this is all winding down and like you know it's it's maybe a little more complicated than that because he is avoiding other people trying to kill him while he's gets R- to that and eventually his self-preservation does kick back in and he tries to escape right. the people shooting at him but but he doesn't do it well, and he doesn't do it in a way that makes sense to well, wanting to actually survive. Right, but right? we also abandon that thing. At some point, we abandon, like, that air quote danger sense, his spidey sense, yeah. Yeah. becomes less and less frequent, more urgent danger when science. it happens, yeah. but less and less frequent until yeah. we don't even get it when he shows up to those guys. Which would imply right. to me either that it doesn't work anymore because he doesn't care anymore, or or it's just not even a thing that he's right. just choosing to not even voice or ignore because he's not even trying to preserve himself really. Right. And he's not trying to preserve himself because those danger signs started to disappear mm. when he opened himself up to Lori. Right. And then he found out Lori... He misread that entire situation, and Lori's got a boyfriend, mm. and she's not she's not interested in being with him. And at that point, he's not interested in being anymore. Right. right? So well, and yeah. and that's an interesting like meditation again on this sort of this character, right? Like Frankie has avoided making human contact for quite some time, and the one time he tries, sort of tries. It backfires, and he literally just cannot handle that. Like it's just, right. it's the straw that broke the camel's back for him, and he right. just, and 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 like, it breaks him. Like it actually just, it's really a fascinating character in that sense that it like actually just breaks him completely. Like the one time he tried, it doesn't work, and and it's somebody he considered very special, right? Like he references how special he considered her, uh, right, in earlier in his life, so. Right, absolutely, yeah. So it's yeah. It, it, Frankie is an emotionally complex character, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So there's, yeah, he is. There's some really good stuff going on here. There really is. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I just I I really do love that voiceover. The no, yeah, time. no, it's I actually, good. It reminds me that I, I made a terrible mistake of writing one of the best things I've ever written as the first assignment in a creative writing class in college, uh, which was a story written in the first and second person um, uh, about a couple having an argument to to sort of disguise uh, gender assignment in, right. in, in story. Um, but yeah, it... <laughs> For the rest, for the rest of uh, two years worth of classes with that same professor, he's like, "Hey, remember that thing you wrote? It's this isn't it. We're waiting um, uh, yeah. for you to do that again." Yeah. yeah well, you know, I mean, it. it yeah, creative writing. Yeah. yeah, it's fair. Um, but yeah, it's uh, 
it it really works here. And and again, like I said, it's it's like it's like God yelling at him the entire time. Well, and, like, and when in actuality, and it's his own psyche yelling it's, at it's him. It's like right? God yelling at me, really. Right, like right, it, it, it right. it's a fascinating paradigm because, like again, the only time I ever I believe ever encountered it is in yeah point and cl- you know in, in text based adventures or eh, point and click right. to a certain extent. Um, at which point it is actually God yelling at you. <laughs> Is essentially right, right, usually right. the narrator trying to talk directly to you, the person who is the yeah. character, and also the person in charge of the character. Right. You know, it, it's it's fascinating, and we know that they're yelling at Frankie. It's Frankie yelling at Frankie, but uh, right. right, it has that effect on the audience as well. Yeah, yeah. But like I said at the top of the show, the the disassociation of him referring to himself in the second person in his mind, right? Uh, constantly, consistently, mm. right. Is uh, is interesting. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, interesting it's really in the interesting. I agree. There's a lot of moments in the writing of this that are really fascinating in compelling ways. Right, uh, and there are plenty of moments that aren't. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, well, but, but there's enough in a 77 minute film. There's enough of those interesting bits that, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it gets there, right? Because, like, absolutely. It's not like it's not like it's a four hour film that has some good bits in it. It's a 77 minute film <laughs> right, that has some good bits right, in it, right? right. Uh, some really interesting choices made in it, and like th- just thinking about that that second person narration, uh, it, it also right it's subverting the sort of standard narration of a noir, right? As a part of, I mean, the person you know, uh, Baron has to know, right? Like that it's supposed to be yeah. I, right? Like normally you're dealing with I, yeah. Um, you know, it's supposed to be first person because you're supposed to be hearing what they're thinking inside themselves. It's right. really interesting. I love it. It's really interesting. An- another great bit in this is it it contains one of my my favorite things in uh in narrative fiction uh particularly movies television shows of the Greenwich Village musician who I'm not sure whether or not the producers mean them as a parody of Greenwich yeah, Village no, I jazz know. musicians it's, it's beautiful <laughs> it's beautiful yeah. no I mean you can never tell it's impossible right you really can't you, is it's, one that Greenwich Village musicians are one of those things that exist without in a that winking space. smiley face yeah. You where you'll never yeah. know it, it, the, the liminal space between those two things is non-existent. <laughs> they are the right. same thing. A parody and the original are exactly the same. Yeah, I kind of love that 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 because like even the fact that it plays into uh, Frankie's inner dialogue about like and the the congas making his like him, yeah. his, him oh. hotter or whatever. It's like it's like. Even that kind of sounds like a joke because you've just got this guy back there wailing with with a conga or whatever it is, yeah. and like, it's just like, what the hell is happening? Oh, absolutely! Here? And the fact that the the song, when he and Ralph leave the room and have their conversation, uh, where Ralph implies blackmail, yeah, and then come back and, and it's, it's the same still song. song, yeah, it's impl- like it's like how long impl- is this song? <laughs> implying that that song in particular is like ten minutes long. Yeah, yep, yep, is... yep. No, it's beautiful. It, but it all checks out. It right. all checks out. Like that's exactly how right. long that song is for sure. Actually, it probably goes on for a little while longer, and we just leave. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh yeah. I mean, and does that it, song doesn't itself, the musician like the... give an explanation of the song before he starts? I think he he, he very well thing. might. I think he does. But just like the plot of that song, might as well be a, a Goddard. <laughs> Yeah, uh, gangster yeah. film, yep, right? Yep, yep. Too. Uh yeah. Um, <laughs> it's great. It's great. It really is great. Uh man, this is this really is such a delightful movie. And uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it's it is bad, maybe in a way to describe a movie where our main character dies at the end as delightful, but it is it, it, it is, is entertaining. Yeah, and and really yeah. like it, it. You this is one of those ones because like it's one of the ones you've never heard of, really. Right. I mean, right. I'm sure people have heard of it. Obviously, we've talked about that. But my point is, like, I had no expectations at all when we rolled in. Yeah. Um, I was shocked for moment one because of the way the narration starts the movie. And the whole movie f- continued that pace pretty much of me being like, what's happened? Wait, what? Okay. Sure. Like, this is – and we get to know him. I, it's very good. I, I like it quite a bit. Yeah, this we've been talking about Blast of Silence from 1961, directed, starring, and written by Alan Barron. Uh, yeah, really just uh, just a delight. Uh, check it out and go on and check out the rest of Alan Barron's career, particularly Kolchak the Night Stalker, because it's a, I love that show. Right. I really do. It's so delightful. Darren McGavin's just great. Uh, but yeah, next week... Uh, I'm really excited for next week. Uh, we'll be talking about The Lovers from 1958, a drama directed by Louis Malle uh, and starring Jean Moreau. So, yeah, look forward to that. Uh, always always a delight to get back to a Malle film. Um, we've loved pretty much everything we've seen from him, uh, with with one exception that we didn't love when we first watched. But I don't but even I remember. I don't even did. remember what one we're referencing at this point. Uh, the one that was uh, semi-autobiographical, I, mean, I can't remember the name of it, but where he, where he's the kid who's sick and has some weird psychosexual stuff going on with his mom. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah, we look forward to that next week. Uh, this week, again, we've been talking about Blast of Silence. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, Liam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. Bye. by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.Bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. It's Patreon.com slash LostInCriterion. We'd appreciate it.